Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode number 85, The Chronicles of Narnia, book one. Though, you know, there's there's some debate about the reading order. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve will appear to defeat the White Witch and put an end to this hundred year winter. I think you've made a mistake. We're not heroes. There's no mistake. Aslan is on the move. We need your help. I know, but understand, the future of Narnia rests on your courage. If it's a war Aslan wants, it's a war he shall get. Numbers far greater than our own. Numbers do not win a battle. No, but I bet they help. Welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books, literature, hidden doorways within a wardrobe, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we both read, and we determine whether it's worthy of its reputation, whether that be positive or negative, and if it is Required Reading. So I'm Stella. I'm leading us through Narnia, making friends along the way. No one believes me, 
But here's Peter. Peter is right beside me, giving me the benefit of the doubt. It's Tom Penneries. (laughs) (laughs) Do you see yourself as one of the kids? Probably Peter. Not Edmund. Because Turkish Delight does not sound very tasty. It's not good. I mean, I haven't had it, but I recall at all the international food festivals that my school did, like people would bring Turkish Delights and then kids would come up to me and be like, that's so gross. And of course, they were like super interested in it because of this book, because of the movie, but it's like not good. So I think it's one of those things where it might be regional, where Mm -hmm. the people of that region really like it, but people outside of that region do not like it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I would say... Even though I appreciate the strong head that uh, Susan has on her shoulders and her, like her leadership, that Lucy and like her fancifulness and her kind heart, I, I would I would love to be a little Lucy. So but definitely, yes. yeah, yeah. So here we are. I mean, we're not really in a winter that's never Christmas because it's the never temperatures are a bit here. balmy. <laughs> yeah, for my taste. But, uh, yeah, we're getting close to the end of the semester. How's how's it shaping up for you? How are you holding on? Holding on is probably the best way to put it. <laughs> you know, I have to apologize to our listeners because I I edited, um, you know, Stella and I edit every other episode depending on who picked the book. And so I edited Walden and I edited um, – what was the one before that? I can't remember. Uh, but whatever it was. and Some book. I sound – especially on Walden, I sound – like I'm underwater. I was, I'm so like sound exhausted when I'm going through these episodes. I'm like, Oh my God. So my apologies for just being just kind of low energy lately. It's just been a little bit, you know, I think it's just been, uh, there's been a lot going on. Um, and I think that just, uh, is catching up with me. Hopefully over the next, I got three more weeks of school left. I think we both do three more weeks in the before the winter break. And um, hopefully we'll have a good respite yeah. <laughs> after yeah. that. Yeah, here's hoping. Here's hoping. Man. Well, yes. I mean, my, yeah, both semesters are, are nearly over. So that'll be, it'll be nice. And then one more class left and I'll have my master's fingers crossed. So. Yeah. Looking forward to that. I know. (laughs) That will both be card-carrying masters in education. Yeah. Yay. Yes. With with the salary to boot. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, yes. I don't ask for a lot, but um, I would love to be in a more financial situation where I don't have four jobs. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That would be great. Oh, man. Well, yes, Christmas is on the way. Uh, we won't talk about spring, even though spring is a hopeful motif, I guess we'll say, in yeah. this book here. But yes, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I think in terms of uh, when it was written was the first. But mm-hmm. I know that there's like a different order that people can read it in. Uh, but we're kind of starting with this one. And of course, it was made popular perhaps or a a renewed popularity by a film that came out uh recently heard a rumor that Greta Gerwig might be interested in doing uh, the series of it which would be very interesting because I do like her as a director but yeah when I thought about you know what sort of winter novels could we potentially do uh, this was one of the ones that popped up so I'm happy to have read it I 
well, I guess we'll find out. But I think for the first time, but I've certainly watched those films a couple times. But what is your history with this series or this book in particular? I'd I'd heard about it for years. This is actually the first time I've read any of these books. Um, for some reason, it never never came on my radar when I was young. Um, I didn't read a lot of fantasy. I read a lot of detective books and things like that. And I had heard of the Chronicles of Narnia, but I I just it was nothing I ever really got interested in. And then I kind of grew up, so to speak, and wasn't really reading you know, young, young uh, reader fantasy. And um, so it's kind of like Harry Potter. It just, I just it passed me by and, and I never really picked it up. And then uh, I remember the film coming out with, I want to say Disney produced it, but I'm not sure. Um, but the film coming out and that being also around the time, like the Lord of the Rings movies were, were coming out as well. And, or, or toward like right after that or whatever. So uh, I think they thought they were going to have like a similar success that, that like Peter Jackson had with the Tolkien stuff. And it just didn't seem to um, land because I think they did two or three other ones. I knew they did Prince Caspian, but I don't know if they did any of the others um, after that. And they kind of fizzled out. But, um, and I of course remember the Saturday night live sketch, but yeah, oh, but then yeah. it just kind of went away. And you suggested this and believe it or not, um, something this, this is a deep pull because I haven't mentioned this in a long time. I have a poster in my wife's office that is a scratch off poster of different novels. Mm -hmm. It's like a hundred great novels. And this is on there. So I was able to, once I finished this, I was able to scratch off <gasps> the chronic, the line, the witch in the wardrobes. That was pretty cool. That's exciting. <laughs> Did you feel accomplished after doing that? I that was kind of nice. I always feel accomplished when I finally tackle one of those books. Um, yeah, you know, some of them are like legit classics that a lot of people would have read or whatever. Like Don Quixote was on there, Frankenstein was on there, and Fahrenheit yeah. was on there, and there's some more recent stuff as well. But yeah, so um, so yeah, so it's kind of it was kind of nice. It'll be it'll be interesting to to have a discussion about this one. Absolutely, yes, and I think even though. Things sounded familiar, like I may have read it before. I may have. I mean, certainly, you know, I'm in Christian circles, mm -hmm. and I do recall, you know, someone mentioning, like, you really need to read these, and thinking to myself, um, I don't know, I'm not, like, super. I mean, I really enjoy the movie, which came out in 2005. That one's the only good one. I don't recommend any of the other ones. Uh. Um, But, yeah, I was like, oh, I don't. You know, my fantasy is like Redwall series. That's my favorite. Mm. Um, but it's, it is good and it's not uh, so fantastical that, you know, if you are anti-fantasy, you'll have a problem with it. Because mm. I think you and, – and I think also if you are irreligious – that you're also not going to have a problem with it. But obviously if there, if you have some religious background, you, you might uh, get a little bit more out of it. So as far as I know, this is like the first time that I've read it. If it's the second, then it's the first time that I've thought deeply about it. And like you, yes, I do remember that sketch. I'm sure uh, at SNL, I'm sure that that song will play at the very end of this episode. So you can <laughs> stay tuned to, to that. But uh, yes, and I will say that the speakers that the school that I worked at for commencement were, I, 
I don't really know. Maybe there were like one or two good ones in my 10 years there. Mm-hmm. Well, one speaker came to talk about one of the books in in this series. And I will never forget that this man gave an entire plot synopsis <laughs> within, the, within the speech. And I was just thinking you could have like just given like a little publisher synopsis and then done your analysis. But no, he's like, and then this happened. And then I was like, this is someone needs to pick these speakers better. And I did <laughs> mention that to the headmaster. I was like, why would you pick someone? who decided to give a plot synopsis in a graduation speech. It was just nuts. So I'll always remember that. <sighs> but anyways, <laughs> um, I mean, of course, I it's not like I make speeches or anything, but I know better than to give synopses when I'm, you know, doing something important. So. Yeah. So I will move on and talk about C.S. Lewis. And this comes from Britannica and – I don't know that I'm going to do the whole thing. Uh, he certainly is an interesting man. I think I recommend maybe looking up uh, some of his life. And, and of course, he, he was close with J.R.R. Tolkien. So we do have connections there. And, yeah, I, th- I feel like if you like Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, that this would be right up your alley as well. Uh, so we're not talking fourth wing or... Akatar, like those fantasy novels. I think we're a little closer... Uh, or more closely steeped in reality, potentially. So Britannica, like I said, uh, I noticed that he died uh, a day after, uh, on November 22nd, uh, which is a day after uh, my birth, but not in the same year. Okay. Reading and education were valued highly in the Lewis household. Lewis's father, Albert Lewis, was a solicitor, and his mother, Florence Hamilton Lewis, graduated from the Royal University of Ireland, now Queen's University Belfast, at a time when it was not common for women to earn degrees. Lewis and his older brother, Warren, also goes by Warney, like their parents, were avid readers. Lewis was something of, of a prodigy. He was reading by age three and by five had begun writing stories about a fantasy land populated by dressed animals, influenced by stories of Beatrix Potter, which were being published as Lewis grew up. Selections of these early stories were collected in Boxen, the imaginary world of the young C.S. Lewis in 1985. After receiving their early education at home, Lewis and his brother attended English boarding schools. Very little learning occurred at the first of these, Winyard School in Watford outside London, overseen by a brutal authoritarian headmaster who was drifting into insanity. My gosh, it sounds like Lowood Institution. Lewis's education was rescued by excellent teachers at Campbell College in Belfast. Cherbourg House in Malvern and at Malvern College, though he did not fit the latter socially and was intensely unhappy there. He left it after a year to be prepped for the University of Oxford entrance exams by W.T. Kirkpatrick, whose tutoring enabled Lewis to win in 1916 a scholarship in classics at University College. After serving in France with the Somerset Light Infantry in World War I, he began his studies at Oxford and achieved an outstanding record. Taking a double first in honors moderations, Greek and Latin texts, you go, sir, and greats, classical history and philosophy, and then staying on for an additional first in English language and literature, completing it in one year instead of the usual three. He became a fellow and tutor of Magdalen College, Oxford, in 1925, a position he held until 1954. 
From 54 to 63, he was professor of medieval and Renaissance English at the University of Cambridge. In his youth, Lewis aspired to become a notable poet, but after his first publications, a collection of lyric verse in 1919 and a long narrative poem in 1926, both published under the name Clive Hamilton, attracted little attention, he turned to scholarly writing and prose fiction. His first prose work to be published, except for some early scholarly articles, was The Pilgrim's Regress, an allegorical apology for Christianity, reason, and romanticism in 1933, an account of his search to find the source of the longings he experienced from his early years, which led him to an adult acceptance of the Christian faith. Lewis had rejected Christianity in his early teens and lived as an atheist through his 20s. Lewis turned to theism in 1930, and to Christianity in 1931, partly with the help of his close friend and devout Roman Catholic, J.R.R. Tolkien. Lewis described these changes in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, which came out in 1955, an account of his spiritual and intellectual life through his early 30s. His first successful work of fiction was Out of the Silent Planet in 38, a novel into which Lewis wove Christian allusions and themes. It and many of Lewis's later books were read aloud and critiqued at meetings of the Inklings, a group of fellow writers who influenced him significantly. C.S. Lewis, obviously. Lewis's brother, Warren, and J.R.R. Tolkien. Owen Barfield, Charles Williams, Colin Hardy, Adam Fox, Hugo Dyson, Lord David Cecil. Cecil and Neville Coghill and uh, the group's name was taken over from a student literary club at the University of Oxford. This was also where he would read many of his works before publication. I will say I mean there are depending on if you're interested in reading uh, some of his Christian works. Uh, there are some definitely that I recommend. I've not read The Abolition of Man, which came out. That, that's nonfiction. Uh, in 1943, though, I've heard good things about it. The Screw Tape Letters is something that people might be interested in. Uh, this came out in 42, and it's um, epistolary fiction, and it is made up of 31 letters in which an old and experienced devil named Screw Tape Tape instructs his basically like apprentice, Wormwood, in the subtle art of tempting a young Christian convert. And it's very interesting, but you kind of have to get your head in the right space because it's like thinking about the flip side. Of course, we have Mere Christianity, which is very interesting. And a personal favorite of mine is called... The Great Divorce. I, I very much enjoy that. And that's about people in Greytown that take a bus somewhere and experience, like, as they say, reality. And you kind of have to figure out where they are and where this Greytown is. But I've used it in classes, actually, to compare it, the Greytown versus some classical ideas of the underworld and what we see in Virgil or in Homer Um, because, of course, Odysseus goes to the underworld uh, to chat with his papa. So, I, yeah, I I do enjoy that one. So we'll get to the main event, of course, is that in 1950, he published what has become 
his most widely known book, The Children's Fantasy, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He went on to write six additional stories, and together the series came to be known as The Chronicles of Narnia. The series, as we'll see, describes the conflicts between good and evil that occur in the kingdom of Narnia, is unified by Aslan, a noble lion, which is the, the form in which the Son of God usually appears in Narnia. The books were hugely popular, and numerous television and film adaptations appeared. The Narnian Chronicles were followed by his last work of fiction, the one he thought his best, Till We Have Faces, A Myth Retold in 56, which is a retelling of the myth of Cupid and Psyche from the viewpoint of, I've never read this, which is actually very shocking on my part, uh, from the viewpoint of one of Psyche's sisters. Uh, it is the least popular of his novels, but the most highly praised by literary critics feel like i'll probably end with that i will say of course that the chronicles of narnia the lion the witch in the wardrobe that film came out in 2005 uh, you are correct sir that it was produced by walt disney pictures chronologically this is the second novel as they say and i don't know that necessarily i have anything to say about this i feel like it was very successful i remember it coming out as a first year in college my boyfriend at the time had a crush on, I hesitate to call him that, but I uh, had a crush on <laughs> Susan. <laughs> uh, that's basically what I remember about it. I mean, Peter was an attractive young man, but it still kind of seems weird to say that when he was just a child. Uh, and Lucy has popped up in random things as an adult. As I watch TV, I see her in things and I think, oh, look, little Lucy. So I feel like that's primarily uh, his life. I didn't talk about his death, but um, just, yeah, a well-known writer he's written prolifically and uh like an interesting journey as well with uh his christianity so any comments on this no okay keep going <laughs> okay so now we'll get into the plot synopsis and this comes from spark notes every teacher's nightmare okay peter susan edmund and lucy pevensey our four siblings sent to live in the country with the eccentric Professor Kirk during World War II. Please note, Tom, that I forgot to ask a question about the setting of World War II, so I'll bring that back. The children explore the house on a rainy day, and Lucy, the youngest, finds an enormous wardrobe. Lucy steps inside and finds herself in a strange snowy wood. She encounters the fawn Tumnus, played by James Mack who is surprised to meet a human girl. Tumnus tells Lucy that she has entered Narnia, a different world. He invites her to tea, and she accepts. They have a wonderful tea, but the fawn bursts into tears and confesses that he is a servant of the evil white witch. The witch has enchanted Narnia so that it always is winter and never Christmas. Tumnus explains that he has been enlisted to capture human beings, and she implores him to release her, and he agrees. Lucy exits Narnia and eagerly tells her siblings about her adventure in the wardrobe. They don't believe her, however. They insist that she was gone for only a few seconds and not for hours, as she so claims. When the Pevensey children look back, look in the back of the wardrobe, they see that it is an ordinary piece of furniture. Edmund, everyone's favorite character, teases Lucy mercilessly about her imaginary country until one day he sees her vanishing into the wardrobe. He follows her and finds himself in Narnia as well. He doesn't see Lucy, but instead meets the White Witch that Tumnus told Lucy about. 
the White Witch introduces herself to Edmund as the Queen of Narnia. The witch feeds Edmund enchanted Turkish delight, which gives Edmund an insatiable desire for the dessert. The witch uses Edmund's greed and gluttony to convince Edmund to bring back his siblings to meet her. On the way back to the lamppost, the border between Narnia and our world, Edmund meets Lucy. Lucy tells Edmund about the White Witch. He denies there being any connection between the White Witch and the Queen. All Edmund can think about is his desire for the Turkish delight. Lucy and Edmund return to Peter and Susan back in their own world. Lucy relies on Edmund to support her story about Narnia, but he spitefully tells Peter and Susan that it is a silly story. Peter and Susan are worried that Lucy is insane, so they talk to Professor Kirk. The professor shocks Peter and Susan by arguing that Lucy is telling the truth. And in a very potent line, he says that she can either be lying telling the truth or mad and this is something that is also used as a way to uh, speak about Christ that he was either lying telling the truth or insane Uh, so there's there's some connections there I'll also say that each of the books are seen to represent one of the deadliest sins and so this book very much focuses on gluttony uh, which we I think visibly see it in terms of the Turkish delight, but there are other things that pop up as well. One day the children hide in the wardrobe to avoid the housekeeper and some house guests. Suddenly all poor Pevensey children find themselves in Narnia. Lucy leads them to Tumnus's home, but a note informs them that Tumnus has been arrested on charges of treason. Lucy realizes this means the witch knows that Tumnus spared Lucy's life and that the witch has captured Tumnus. Lucy implores her siblings to help her rescue Tumnus from the witch. Guided by a friendly robin, the children wander into the woods and meet Mr. Beaver. Mr. Beaver brings them back to his home, where he explains that the children cannot do anything to save Tumnus. The only thing the children can do is join Mr. Beaver on a journey to see Aslan, a lion. He appears to be a king or god figure in Narnia. The children are all pleasantly enchanted by the name Aslan, except for Edmund, who is horrified by the sound of it. Mr. Beaver, Peter, Susan, and Lucy plot to meet Aslan at the stone table the following day but they soon notice that Edmund has disappeared. Meanwhile, Edmund searches for the White Witch to warn her of Aslan's arrival and of the beaver's plan. The witch is enraged to hear that Aslan is in Narnia and immediately begins plotting to kill the children. The witch wants to avoid an ancient prophecy that says the four humans will someday reign over Narnia and overthrow her regime. And these children are called uh, the Sons of Adam and the Daughters of Eve, FYI. The children and the beavers, meanwhile, rush to reach the stone table, which could be um, symbolizing the stone tablets that Moses brought down, before the witch. As they travel, wonderful seasonal changes occur. First, they meet Santa Claus, or Father Christmas, who explains that the witch's spell of always winter, never Christmas, has ended. The enchanted winter snow melts, and the children see signs of spring. Simultaneously, the witch drags Edmund toward the stone table and treats him very poorly. Once spring arrives, the witch cannot use her sledge anymore, so she cannot reach the stone table before the children. When the other three Pevensies meet Aslan, they are awed by him, but they quickly grow more comfortable in his presence. They love him immediately, despite their fear. He promises to do all that he can to save Edmund. He takes Peter aside to show him the castle where he will be king. As they are talking, they hear Susan blowing the magic horn that Father Christmas gave her, uh, signaling that she is in danger. 
Aslan sends Peter to help her. Arriving on the scene, he sees a wolf attacking Susan and he stabs it to death with the sword given to him by Father Christmas. Aslan sees another wolf vanishing into a thicket and sends his followers to trail it, hoping it will lead them to the witch. The witch is preparing to kill Edmund as the rescue party arrives. Aslan and his followers rescue Edmund but are unable to find the witch who disguises herself as part of the landscape. Edmund is happy to see his siblings as he has accepted that the witch is evil. The next day, the witch and Aslan speak, and the witch demands Edmund's life because she says that Edmund is a traitor, and according to the deep magic of Narnia, a traitor's life is forfeit to the witch. Aslan does not deny this, and he secretly reaches a compromise with her. The witch appears very pleased, and Aslan seems pensive and depressed. The following night, Susan and Lucy observe Aslan growing increasingly gloomy and sad. The sisters are unable to sleep, and they notice that Aslan has disappeared. Susan and Lucy leave the pavilion to search for Aslan. When they find him, he tells them they can stay until he tells them they must leave. Very much like the the last uh, evening of, of Christ. Together, Aslan, Susan, and Lucy walk to the stone table, where Aslan tells them to leave. Susan and Lucy hide behind some bushes and watch the witch and a horde of her followers torment, humiliate, and finally kill Aslan. The witch explains that Aslan sacrificed his life for Edmund. Susan and Lucy stay with Aslan's dead body all night. In the morning, they hear a great cracking noise and are astounded to see the stone table broken, kind of like the, the temple um, shaking when Christ died. Aslan has disappeared. Suddenly, Susan and Lucy hears Aslan's voice from behind him. Aslan has risen from the dead, a la Christ. Aslan carries the girls to the witch's castle where they free all the prisoners who have been turned to stone. Aslan, Susan, and Lucy charge and join the battle between Peter's army and the witch's troops. Peter and his troops are exhausted, uh, but Aslan swiftly kills the witch and Peter's army then defeats the witch's followers. Aslan knights Edmund, who has atoned for his sin of siding with the witch. The children ascend to the thrones at Caer Paravel, the castle Narnia. Aslan subsequently disappears. The children eventually become adults and reign over Narnia for many years. One day, in a hunt for a magical white stag that gives a wish or two or three at least one wish a two ever catches it they arrive at the lamppost that had marked the border between narnia and our world the pevensies tumble back out of the wardrobe to our world no time has passed and they return to professor kirk's house as children the foursome tells professor kirk about their adventure and the professor assures them that they will return to narnia again someday uh, it's probably said somewhere but i very much felt like professor kirk was a stand-in for c.s lewis yeah it makes sense yeah i'm sure that there's discussion about that elsewhere if they uh, return to Narnia, are they the adults they were when they left, or they return back as children again? I think they return back as children, and I'm only saying that because I've uh, seen the sequel of the film, mm. but I cannot say that with any with any evidence. To gotcha. My claim. Well, the first question, of course, is: Did you like it? Once I kind of uh -oh. got used to the the style, it was. It, it was all right um because I, I i i went in thinking this was going to be kind of on the level of like the lord of the rings in terms of like you know the, the style and then i i was like about a chapter two and i was like oh this really is meant for a much younger audience and um so i kind of had to adjust um similar to like when we were reading like uh charlotte's web for instance oh, um it reminded me a lot of peter pan and I don't like Peter Pan. 
Interesting. The whole, you know, the even though Peter Pan, never, never, like nobody grows up and everything, but there's there's this sort of Brit, this sort of British children fantasy subgenre that's really not my thing. Um, that being said, uh, the concept is really interesting. The the whole idea of of what they uh, what they do and then the the fact that there is like some actual you know, um, action and betrayal and, and things. There's some really, really good plot points in here. It felt like a lot of telling and not showing in places. Cause it did feel like it's, especially as we get toward the, um, like the climax of the book where the, the kids become rulers, it's like, and this happened and this happened and this happened. So, um, but overall it was, it was, it was all right. I, I read it in like a day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I, I enjoyed it enough to to just read it all the way through. You called it. I'm just gonna call you out on some terminology because I just mm. want you to explain. You called it a fantasy subgenre. Could you explain what you mean by that? Uh, the subgenre of br- British school children fantasy novels. The sort of the idea that like the 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 idea that some some British English child gets involved in some sort of fantastical tale, okay. you know this your roll doll, oh. Peter Pan, like that sort of thing. It's okay. you know it's like a it's not a fantasy subgenre. It's like the like the specific like the character is a British child. I see. And there there's something fantastical that they're encountering, whether it be the BFG or the Giant Peach or Narnia or Never Neverland and that sort of thing. Okay. But you do like Lord of the Rings, yeah? I do. I think Lord of the Rings to me for off the bat is a lot more complex. Okay. Although I will say that Lewis gets to the point in the beginning of this novel in the way that Tolkien does not in The Hobbit. <laughs> sure, The Hobbit takes a little while to get going, but um, but this this goes this goes pretty much right there, and, and gotcha. there's a there's an intrigue about what Narnia is. Yes, uh, part of it, and I did do a quick search, and it does look like they're using the word children to describe their return. When in Prince Caspian, so I think uh. they just return as they are, um, even though time has passed in Narnia, obviously. I do wonder if, because I can agree with you with the telling and not necessarily showing, I think we have to consider his audience, because it was, what, dedicated to his granddaughter? Yeah. If I'm correct. Who's also named, yeah. Oh, his goddaughter. Goddaughter, yeah. Yeah, his name is Lucy, yes. And I also wonder, like, did he begin writing this knowing it was going to be a series? And so perhaps he's, like, world-building initially, but um, until later maybe we don't get to see what is Narnia because we're only in this, like, one little area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I wonder those sorts of questions. But I, I do uh, see what you're saying. I enjoyed it i i think like you yeah you kind of have to t- especially with like what i've been reading for class and like yeah. quote unquote fun <laughs> you have to sort of reorient yourself or just orient yourself to the style of the writing as well as oh this is not you know i don't have to like focus on because we just did walden so to yeah. go from walden to this is like nuts <laughs> where you're like hyper focused on what 
he's saying about you know nature and yeah. um, the nature of man, and then and then Philosophy we go to this. It was it. it was a breath of fresh air to be honest. And I also liked, which I tried to do a little bit just as I was doing the plot synopsis, but for me also thinking about, oh, you know, what are these illusions or the symbolism? How is he connecting this to Christianity? So that was also like a fun little mm-hmm. plot exercise as well. So I, I enjoyed it. Um, I think it would probably be worthwhile for me to finish up the series, um, especially it doesn't take too terribly long just to see where it goes. So I think I liked it a bit uh, more than you did. Fantasy is not my go-to genre. Um, like I said, Redwall is probably my favorite of that. Um, I have all the War of the Rings, so I've yet to read them, but I'm just not. I don't really go there as often with my choices in reading. I pick and choose. I think the most of a fantasy that I've read is probably Lord of the Rings. Okay. I've read some things here and there, but no, I t- I'm, I'm kind of like with you but every once in a while i dip my toast to some classic medieval literature that sort of thing yeah so like uh like arthurian legend and things like that i really do enjoy that i will say um with the comment about world building i don't know if he was writing this knowing it was going to be a series but i will say that it works on its own so if he never wrote another book for the narnia chronicles Etc. Yeah. This still would work as a standalone book because it doesn't depend on any other book being written. Right. So. Which leads me to wonder what the magician's nephew, which is chronologically the first one, is mm-hmm. like. Uh, if we're leading into this, I don't know if it has anything to do with the wardrobe or anything. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is, is that like um, this. I always thought this was the first book in the series. My in-laws bought the box set for Brett and it's like at their house. And it wasn't until I saw the box set and I saw the magician's nephew was the first book that I realized that it wasn't the case. And I've I've heard that there's some debate over that, Uh, but I'm not enough. I'm not steeped enough in the whole history of (laughs) of the C.S. Lewis, the Cardinals and already didn't know why there's a whole debate about it. Um, But, but yeah, so I've always thought this was the first one. Yeah. I wonder if anything leads us uh, to know more about professor Kirk. Because he's certainly, even though he's in like 2% of the novel, you know, you kind of wonder who is this man. <laughs> he's, you know, so open to Lucy's yeah. interpretation and believes the kids and everything. So. Yeah. He's, he strikes me like if you're following the classic like Joseph Campbell monomyth hero's journey, he strikes me as a character that might help fulfill the role of like the um, elder companion the wise person the person who you know the obi-wan kenobi type like you know the person who guides yeah. our hero in places and i think he he in bits and pieces he serves that role in, in this uh in this story at least yeah absolutely so something i forgot to ask in our little document of course is about the setting mm-hmm. um because obviously the main setting is narnia but to even get there, the reason why these kids are out in the countryside is to pull them away from London, which, of course, you know, London really went through it during World War II yeah, the Blitz. with bombings and everything. Yeah. So is this 
at all uh, does it at all have an impact on the story this this particular time setting with world war ii and I, I think just to you know a separate piece where that was always in the background do you feel like this is at all in the background for this did you think about it after it was mentioned once they were in narnia i didn't think about it very much when i was reading the book but when you brought it up, I started to think about it and it really does work because they're escaping the bombs. And so the Narnia itself is um, kind of an escapist fantasy. You know, it's a fantasy world. And I don't know, maybe there's also an allegory of the war in there because they're saving that particular place or world from a dictator and that's what britain would go on to do Mm. you know saving saving continental europe from adolf hitler so perhaps there's a little bit of a of a connection there but i do think the idea that you would create a fantasy world or involve investigate a fantasy world to escape from the harsh reality that your that your parents are trying to protect you from is tracks yeah, and, and I feel like in that way, now that we add World War II as a backdrop, I would almost consider this fantastic realism to a certain mm. extent because now you have this balancing act of what is real and what is fantasy with these kids, right? Because with Lucy, and, and I think about, have you seen Pan's Labyrinth? No. Do you know what I'm talking about, though? I know the I've, I've I know of the movie. Yeah. Okay, I think about that. There's also a book I read during the YA Young Lit, which is like How to Catch a Tiger. I think and it follows mm. a Korean family, and that was like a balance between like what is real and what is fiction. I love Pan's Labyrinth because that takes place during I believe the Spanish Civil War, and this little girl is like seems to be creating this fantasy world. But things are happening in, like, the quote-unquote real world that make you rethink, like, oh, wait, is this stuff actually happening? You're, like, wondering what's going on. Because for Lucy, I think that's an argument that at least Susan and Peter have that she might be so – either she's going insane or she's just, like, so emotionally affected by the war and being pulled away from that and being – situated in this unknown place that she's creating this fantasy world and then it turns Mm -hmm. out to be you know real and so certain things are more fantastic than others and some are realistic so Mm -hmm. i wonder if we could define it as a fantastic realism like well because that's certainly the role of professor kirk because he's very much steeped in the real the real world quote unquote but then um there's kind of this like well you know this could be a da 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 so that's how I kind of perceive, yeah, World War II, which you're, you're very right, that kind of these stressors create this way to, Lucy has created this way to escape from mm-hmm. what's going on in the real world. But yes, highly recommend Pan's Labyrinth. I find it a uh, very interesting book. It's oh, somewhere on my very long list of movies I'm sure, that I just yeah. never got around to, yeah. Guillermo del Toro. So let's see here. Uh, well, we were talking about the professor. Did you want to go mm-hmm. into depth a little bit more with him? Sure. Okay. So how, how do you feel like he demonstrates logic and through this demonstration, he might 
prove to the children, in particular Susan and Peter, and then us, that Narnia, you know, might be a real thing. Back on this side of the door, I feel like it should be Chapter 5, if that helps you. Logic. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister, this is what I was talking about, your sister's telling lies, or she is mad, or she's telling the truth. Mm-hmm. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it's obvious that she is not mad. For the moment then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. Um, and then, of course, Peter wonders how it can be true. And then Peter's going on about, you know, if it was real, why doesn't everyone find this country every time they go to the wardrobe? Well, sir, if things are real, they're there all the time. And the professor's like, are they? <laughs> Uh, this is the very thing, and uh, Susan mentions that, you know, she's saying she's there for hours, but she comes back and it's less than a minute. The professor says, that is the very thing that makes her story so likely to be true. If there really is a door in this house that leads to some other world, and I should warn you that this is a very strange house, and even I know very little about it, if I say she had gotten to another world, I should not be at all surprised to find that that other world had a separate time of its own. So that however long you stayed there, it would never take up any of our time. On the other hand, I don't think many girls of her age would invent that idea for themselves. If she had been pretending, she would have hidden for a reasonable time before coming out and telling her story. All right. So he's doing a couple of things here. You mentioned fantastic realism, and this is kind of playing into that, I guess, or related concept to that is magical realism uh you know the like the gabriel garcia marquez type where you accept that the magic is or whatever the fantastical thing is just is right like it's part of the it's happening you don't have to question it you don't need its origin you don't need to see mr weatherby who runs the old amusement park and he would have gotten away with it it is just it is just there and there's no there's no reason behind or whatever it just exists and i think he's kind of establishing that oh he's also creating a suspension of disbelief for everybody and i think the other thing is too he's validating it because lewis is not going down the with the trope of the parents never believe that the kid, what the kids are saying yeah like you have an adult that they trust verifying what Lucy has seen. Mm-hmm. So that I think is really important for the kids too. Yeah, I and I like the fact that he plays off of Lucy's nature. Yeah. Lucy's nature as Lucy and Lucy's nature as a child. She is the youngest. I don't know her age offhand. And Peter and Susan both know that Lucy is not a liar. That is something that they would say about Edmund, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so why would she lie, start to lie all of a sudden? And then, and of course, you know, anything could happen. Trauma, reflex, <laughs> of course. But also just that this is kind of a crazy thing to say for a young child to say that there's like some sort of time dilation portal situation Mm -hmm. going you know that oh the time works differently than that because he's absolutely right so he gives the potential and then he also gives kind of the the antithesis almost like an antithesis of like if this is true da 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 but then he disproves that antithesis to get back which is as you're supposed to in any sort of claim uh so he says you know how, how would she 
come up with that. If so, she would have just waited in uh, the wardrobe and come out after a certain amount of time. So it does, yeah, it does, I think, seem very logical. And I think you do certainly have to suspend some disbelief. Mm-hmm. And, you know, be as as children because that that's, I think, a very biblical thing, too, of like, you know, be as a child, basically have the faith of a child. But, yeah, I, I feel like he does a good job <laughs> to, to show the logic. He's also not dismissive of the children. And I yeah. think that is a common thing in with adults and children interacting in books like this where the the, the the adults don't take the kids seriously so in this case he is taking the kids seriously and i think that's very very important absolutely what would the creation or why i should say why would the creation of an alternate universe such as narnia be useful to a writer like c.s lewis as much as there is reality surrounding this world i think that creating your own world and you can create the rules and you have there's a certain amount of freedom because you you can do what you want with it you know i mean obviously there's logical confines of the story but in the same way that tolkien created narnia not narnia um middle earth or lucas created a long time galaxy a long time ago etc etc you know like you 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 can establish your own rules and then you can play with those rules and break them when you feel that you need to and such. And I think that's a very valuable thing. And, um, you know, as somebody who likes to write, I think it's fun (laughs) if I'm being completely honest, right? It must be really fun to create that sort of idea. And, and like you said in the, um, the bio stuff, you know, this is something that he probably, that seems he, he pulled, from his own childhood, you know, so it shows the imagination in a way that's something happening in a very real world where your research is done, you know, as, 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 as interesting as those books are, this, this is way more, there's a lot more fun to it. Absolutely. Yeah. World building, creating mm-hmm. something from scratch. I think he also, uh, given his Christian background, finding a way to connect it to that as well and mm. creating this allegory. I think was also great, you know, able to create something that is designed potentially for younger audiences, but that everyone can get enjoyment out of. And certainly something that maybe people who, you know, don't have religion. I mean, you could maybe you could uh, say that I'm wrong about this, but, you know, it's like tolerable um, or people who are are maybe wanting to explore it and they can like read this and religion's not being shoved down their throat. Uh, so they can kind of yeah. guess, investigate like, oh, what is the you know, what is it about Christ? That's such a compelling figure um, to the people that are following him and then looking at Aslan and, and seeing, uh, you know, the sacrifice that he makes for Edmund, you know, yeah. which like reading in the Bible is like very intense. But, you know, when you have it here, which is like one step removed in that intensity, um, I mean, the message is the same, but the intensity, I think, is stripped away, then it, it might be more palatable and maybe more attractive and, and will bring bring some people to the fold. I certainly didn't feel like it was being shoved down my throat or that I was being preached at. I'm glad to hear it. Because I think that is a trap to fall into when you're using 
your novel as a religious or philosophical allegory. Yes. And very often, if it does dive into the preachiness, it usually doesn't work. I would agree. Yeah, there's really none of that. I mean, Aslan, I think, is a very, like, straightforward yeah. character who doesn't, yeah, who doesn't yeah. spend on ceremony. And he, like, has lessons, and um, yeah. he's got his, his kind of the big moment, but he also speaks wisdom uh, to Peter, and yeah, mm-hmm. so, yeah. And again, it, there's a, when you have the characters who are children and the animals, it it, it works because of the the kids in that that audience, and he and Lewis is not talking down to the kids in the audience right. either. The only other book that I've read where there's such a there's such an allegory using talking animals is uh, oh, yeah. Orwell's Animal Farm, but that is very upfront in what it's about, and it is almost a it is a deliberate criticism and satire in some ways as well, so that he kind of has to be heavy handed in the allegory so that you'll get it. Yeah. Uh, the lesson of course, being that Joseph Stalin is awful. Um, but this, you don't need it to be that heavy handed. Mm-hmm. So, um, because you, you're essentially, you're giving us lessons about honesty and, uh, doing the right thing and morality and stuff. Um, the children should be getting from their parents anyway and in a way that is going to land for them that preaching at them for 100 pages wouldn't. Would, yeah. I don't think I preached that correctly. But <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Which is something that kind of the screw tape letters does. In a, so this is definitely, I think, easier easier to handle, even though the screw tape letters are very interesting. How would you describe justice in Narnia under the witches, white witches reign? And if we can always use Mr. Tumnus's situation mm. as an example, so his crime as well as his arrest and punishment. So his crime is he was supposed to turn Lucy over to the white witch and did not. Correct. Like the White Witch's sense of justice seems to just be very self-serving, and and based on punishment more yeah. than than what's just. What do you think? Yeah, I would agree. You know, I think about Batman, and I just, <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, in the last in the epilogue, I guess it was of War Games. Can't believe mm-hmm. I'm referencing that. He has a discussion with Jim before Jim Gordon goes off uh, to where Barbara is going because they're leaving the city. And he says something about um, the law and justice are two different things. And I feel like that might be like there might be something inherently wrong with the question to say justice mm-hmm. because I feel like it's the law that we have in this land under, under the White Witch. And laws, as we know, are not necessarily just or equitable. Yeah. So I feel like there is no justice necessarily under the white witch's regime. Um, there's a law, and the law is absolutely self-serving. Um, yeah. And, I mean, it's interesting because betrayal of her, which is, I suppose, what this crime would be, means that he did the right thing. So it's, like, mm-hmm. very top <laughs> It's like a perverse sense of justice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. 
that the the funny thing is is that you the um the the discussion you you talked about with Batman and Jim Gordon I remember a panel or an exchange in oh, in the early eighties there was a miniseries called The Untold Legend of the Batman that was basically like an updated version of the origin and there's one or two panels where he's in law school and he's arguing with his professor over what is the law and what is justice oh. and so i kind of came back to that because it's kind of one of the i mean you know that's what it isn't that like one of the motivations of that character right like he's meeting out justice yeah. in a way that the police cannot or that he finds to be more righteous than you know what the police can or cannot do yeah and it's interesting like i i I don't think i have the capacity to talk about this thoroughly but i just Mm. now think about kind of what the law is in terms of um the bible Mm. and i mean that is that's the you know the ten commandments is in fact the law so it's just interesting to think about that versus justice um i think our ideas yeah. Ooh, I don't have the someone else would have to speak about that and how it kind of works in this world. Yeah, and oh getting into the sense of the law and justice and the Bible, that's a whole other conversation because there's the Ten Commandments obviously and then the other things for the Old Testament that are more applicable to Judaism than Christianity at this point. Yeah. And then there's what we see in the New Testament from Christ or from Paul or, you know, so there's, you know, what are the rules? What is right? What is wrong? What are the expected behaviors and things like that? Um, This is a little more cut and dry. Yeah. Um, And the, the, the winter shows that like something, the constant winter shows that something is not quite right with the world. Right. And and the perverse sense of justice she has, yeah. So she's the. It's the. There's a cloud over everything, as as pretty as it looks. As pretty as it looks, you know. Yeah, with the winter. So. What do you think? And I mean, uh, with her, you know, in a similar vein or fashion as as Lord of the Rings, kind of the the creatures that are not as attractive <laughs> even though there is a giant that turns out to be on their side but like ogres and wolves the orcs and, and all like that, that. Yeah. yeah i know yeah uh they all are followers followers of her and then mm-hmm. um kind of the more majestic and like i not necessarily pray but uh yeah it's just interesting that wolves tend to go over there so things that maybe have a threatening feel to them mm-hmm. or maybe more wintrier with her what do you think about, um, I mean, her punishments for people is turning them to stone. Do you think mm. that has any significance? I don't know. Um, I thought of Medusa. Yeah. Because <laughs> talk about classics, right? Get mythology. Yeah. I don't know if there's a particular significance to that. What do you think? I'm not sure either. This was uh, just something that um, I thought of as we were discussing this particular mm. one. I don't know if they're just like what what could be worse than kind of frozen in this limbo. <laughs> um, That's a good point. Yeah. And then is, there's not really – she's the only one potentially that can bring you out of that. Like no, nothing else. 
on that earthly plane can save you. Oh, we see that, obviously, um, Aslan can, but we don't know. And I think she was pretty confident that he would not be returning or being on the move, as they can mm. say. So it just seems like that's a forever thing and your punishment is eternal. Is she essentially an allegory for Satan? I like, feel like yes. Because, like, Satan has this demonic army, right, so right. to speak. But Satan's also, like, the great deceiver. Yeah. So Satan can look really attractive. Because uh, she's not, unless I misread it, she's not ugly. She's supposed to be kind of alluring in some way. Yeah. Or at least that's what I was picturing. So the eternal damnation of setting somebody in stone, like, I guess that's the closest I can come. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, since we're talking about justice, sure. Edmund earns the title Edmund the Just. Huh. So how would you describe his, his change over the course of the story, and, and why do you think he gets that particular title? He He kind of goes through a on a minor level, like a fall and a redemption yeah. because he is led into temptation. It's eventually delivered from evil to quote the prayer, but you know, he, he, he is, he, he and he betrays, like he, yep. he takes place in this, takes part in this betrayal and, and really uh, needs to be redeemed for, for what he does. And I think that perhaps he becomes Edmund the Just because he has seen he has seen the error of his ways, made up for what he did, and now um, can be uh, kind of the arbiter of that because he has the knowledge and experience. I can appreciate, like, obviously he's my he's my least favorite character. I don't know that mm. that was necessarily. Well, it could be. I didn't like him very character. much either, but I but I liked the story arc. Yeah, well, he's the only one that I would argue has a dynamic character. Yeah. Because everyone else does consistently say the same because they're like more or less kind of decent humans. Yeah, that's so really he good point. Yeah, he does undergo that. And I think maybe he gets the just because he went through that. Mm -hmm. And so I think now he knows the value of honesty. He does own up to it. Yeah, shows remorse for his actions and everything. And to assert that, you know, he was led astray after I think that first bite of Turkish delight. He was... <laughs> bewitched you know pun mm -hmm. intended but yeah so i think he hit the lowest of lows and then through someone else sacrificing himself to save his life i think he recognized the error of his ways and really turned it around which is great because i think there was certainly like a, a schism between maybe a small schism between him and his siblings because peter certainly wasn't having any of it either <laughs> so yeah yeah well and it's a classic sort of deal with the devil right like that it it will always go in the devil's favor as much as they are rewarding with you with what you wanted mm -hmm. so we're seeing that on a more we're seeing it on a childlike scale of a kid wanting more candy and i can appreciate that yeah what moral values does aslan's death at the hand of the white witch teach us if it's the allegory we're looking at, isn't it essentially a sacrifice? Yes. And and like a self-sacrifice so that there's, I don't think it's telling us that you have to sacrifice yourself, literally. 
but in a figurative way you might have there might be sacrifices you have to make for the good of the other even if it's a person who has not been the greatest cuz doesn't he essentially sacrifice on some level he does it for uh for uh Edmund correct so i think he, on every level yeah 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 so he's sacrificing himself for like the character you don't like, but like, you know, there's, there's that whole idea of, of, well, martyrdom, right? Um, so this is a very literal, like the, the allegory of Christ is a very, very literal way of doing it. But I can imagine that metaphorically speaking, you can make those sort of compromises and sacrifices in your life, especially if it serves the greater good. Yeah. I mean, the lower school that I, uh, I didn't teach at the lower school, but the lower school of the school that I taught at their catchphrase, I guess I'll say was I'm third. And so from a Christian Mm -hmm. lens, it'd be God is first, others are second and I'm third, I'm third, which I think even if you, again, don't subscribe to religion, you could, you know, it might be something to consider to say, you know, others are first and and I'm second. Yeah. Uh, So in a way, I think that this is, um, this is something now as a counterpoint to this, uh, I just read for my, my thesis class, Wait, what? And other essential questions by Jim Ryan, the now president of UVA, <laughs> but at the time he wrote that, uh, was dean of education at Harvard. And one of the questions that he, an essential question he brings up, is what truly matters, and just so like examine a situation and figure out like what truly matters in this situation. And I had brought up that we should be cautious about this because some people might in fact say what truly matters is me and my happiness. And so I do wonder to what level, because I, as I, you know, me personally, I will find that making decisions, I will often put myself last, sometimes to my detriment. So while this is great, uh, my question is like a follow-up question. Should this be done every time if you might be suffering from it? No, because there's um, – martyrdom only gets you so far. And if you are constantly sacrificing yourself in the service of others, you're not going to have anything left. And you do need to take care of yourself. I just think from a psychological standpoint or mental health standpoint, it also, and this is probably more cynical of a, of a train of thought than, 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 uh, than Lewis or or UV. So I think giving yourself so much to that degree opens the door for others to take advantage of you. Yeah. So there's some level of self-protection and selfishness that you have to have in life. Yes. Uh, and I think there definitely needs to be, yeah, balance. Um, cause we're not all superhuman like Aslan slash Christ where we, yeah. can, you know, do it. But I, I do. Yeah. I think that this might be a generalization, but I think in this current age, it seems to be more kind of solipsistic thinking and like we're very much in the center and like us, us, us. And I do worry about that. But at the same time, as one of my uh, colleagues or peers said, you know, I do have to be careful about 
filling my own cup too because if your cup is empty and you're giving 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 you have nothing to give (laughs) so you do certainly need to be so I think the moral overall is like you do definitely need to consider other people and potentially make a sacrifice but if you are just like unable I'm not saying unwilling but unable to sacrifice then you do need to consider that that someone might need to help you out because we talked about empathy to to our detriment as well, I think, in a previous episode, too. So I think it mm-hmm. works a similar way. Yeah. Well, we're both educators. <laughs> how would you say... <laughs> how would you... <laughs> gosh, interpret whatever that took call what was. I do educating, Stella. Oh, gosh. How would you say the children's journey into Narnia is an alternative education to the one that they experience in school? You know, like, uh, it's going back to what you're talking about, morality and, and lessons that they learn about. Um, they learn some very adult lessons. They watch a somebody they have befriended die yeah. and come back, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they learn, on some level, they learn politics. Although, it's interesting because they, they rule Narnia as kings and, and princesses and queens or whatever. Um, for many, many years. So they've obviously learned that, but there's a, Lewis doesn't really seem to get into what that was like very much beyond the uh, fact that they just are like good leaders. So there's like a, a shine on them and we don't see a lot of those complicated, complicated things, but I can imagine that they learn a lot of lessons about, um, what it is like to be in charge. Um, I don't know how much they learn about the reality of the adult world, though. Mm. Except for war. Except for war. Yeah, because everything does seem lovely after yeah. the battle. Like, I don't even know how how much justice are they actually tolling out, you know? Mm-hmm. Or just not. I do wonder, because Lucy is naive in that conversation with Tumnus about how he was contracted to like give children away and he's like apologizing. She's like, what are you apologizing for? It's like, well, you're the child I have to give away. So there might've been like some lessons, but yeah, I don't know how many they could potentially pull to the real world. Um, War is something. And that's unfortunate just because they were, pulled away from the war to protect them and then they're like in a war so that was a bit counterintuitive there um but yeah life and death um potentially you know the ramifications of our actions that every action has some sort of effect or outcome trying to think of what else i mean i get you know they grew up it's oh my gosh it's just like the bible and jesus where Mm -hmm. we see him as six i think and then all of a sudden at 27 you're like what happened in between that you kind of wonder like what happened between these kids being kids and then all of a sudden being grown adults yeah because he's born we get the birth story Uh and three of the four books because i don't think i think mark starts with him recruiting the disciples if i'm trying to remember off the top of my head and then there's him in the temple when he's a kid yep and then he's 30 fast forward yep yeah he's like 30 or or thereabouts um yeah the kids yeah just kind of fast forward the other thing about the ward here they do learn things about war but they don't really get the war as hell side of things it's a very 
it's fantasy and it's very much a fantastical sort of view of war. It's the war that you would expect to see like in a children's adventure book of of this uh, of this vintage really i mean you know it's i mean yes there's death on the battlefield but like aslan swoops in and kills the white witch and the the kids have their armies and you know it's almost like they're playing war yeah and so they they learn about it and perhaps there's something to be said about that so that they could uh feel good about going into the war in the real world and that, you know, they will defeat the evil and things like that. If we're going back to the world war two connection, but, but yeah, there's, they learn some things, but a lot of it is couched in some very um, simplistic portrayals of it. Yeah. So I, I I do wonder what their lessons were as leaders, because I think that that could be something that's very formative, but we don't know. I do, let's see, if we're moving back into education, what does Aslan teach Lucy with regards to how she uses her bottle of fire flower juice? Uh, This was one of the things that she got from Father Christmas. I'm trying to see if I can find the quote because she's like really trying to heal her her brother. And then Mm -hmm. Aslan says, ah, oh, here we go. Daughter of Eve says said Aslan in a graver voice others are also at the point of death must more people die for Edmund mm. what lesson is there in that what page is that on 146 for me but I don't know what your version is actually it's in the hunting of the white stag oh it's the second page of chapter 17 at least for me I don't I doubt that we have the same edition so she Lucy is essentially a healer Yes. There's almost like a feel of like Edmund has to learn these things for himself or has to tend to himself. If you keep helping or healing him, he'll never learn. I don't, I'm probably way off base there. Um, He certainly does. He kind of teaches her to let him be and and figure this out on his own um, or at least, you know, heal, heal himself uh, or maybe, or perhaps he's just teaching a better lesson of like that you have so many there, like, again, that I'm third part of it that her need as a sister would be to heal her brother because he's because blood's thicker than water right but here he's saying no you need to attend to the many many other people who are who are sick we've all given something for edmund maybe you know how how much more do we have to do this you know you have other priorities so i mean maybe that's what we're getting at here do you think it could also be a trolley car situation (laughs) yeah that's actually a really good really good reference um with the idea that, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, do you save one person or like a whole trolley car of people? Yeah. The trolley car problem. Because she's so focused on her brother, which of course, you know, family, that there are other people dying on the battlefield. Yeah. And so if she wastes this potion just on one guy, look at all these people that have died. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really good... I think the trolley problem is a really good way to put it because it is that like how much do you sac do you sacrifice the one person for the needs of the many, yeah. you know and and I think that's what's going on here. Perhaps that's the um, again that notion of sacrifice and that notion of of giving and putting yourself and your immediate needs behind what other people need. Yeah. 
What's interesting is that um, Edmund doesn't know what Aslan did for him, or at least like right after Aslan walks away um, in that very scene, he's uh, there's. Does he know? Whispered Lucy to Susan, "What Aslan did for him? Does he know that the what the arrangement with the witch really was?" Hush, no, of course not," said Susan. Ought, "Oughtn't he to be told?" said Lucy. "Oh, surely not," said Susan. "It would be too awful for him. Think of how you'd feel if you were he." All the same, I think he ought to know," said Lucy. But at that moment, they were interrupted. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder how Edmund would have reacted had he found out. Would this be a lesson in guilt? Because that's, yeah. that's a lot to live with. It is a lot to live with, and I think it spoils the gift if you're feeling guilty. Because mm-hmm. the idea is that, even though it was you know, pretty awful what he went through, um, that it's a beautiful thing what Jesus has done for us, uh, sacrificing himself. And so like, we're supposed to take that gift and, and move forward. And I mean, it's a blessing. So I think maybe, yeah, maybe guilt or shame. And so those are both negative uh, emotions that are harmful. And maybe just celebrate that he he has a new lease on life. So this is not a Catholic allegory. <laughs> maybe not. Catholic guilt. Yeah. Um. <laughs> no daredevil here. No, yeah. No, I think I think that's about right. It's we keep coming back to the same points, but again, I have to remind myself that this book was written for, you know, on some level children. So the points are going to be very clear. Yeah. You know, there could be nuance. This you know, children's literature and and, and middle grade young adult, whatever we want to classify it as, is not devoid of nuance. But you have to you have to be very upfront with the lesson that you're you're teaching in a book like this, or else the kids are not going to get it. Yeah. Um, and you can't have too much going on because then it just gets confuses your audience. So he has kind of a straight line that he's just leading us along, and and there are these different stops along the way. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, as someone who teaches the Odyssey, you will appreciate this next question. Mm-hmm. How do meals and the consumption of food express differences in ideas of friendship and trust? Oh, so much eating in the Odyssey. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then, of course, the feast of blood and gore at the very end. Yeah. Well, and then there's the the, the Turkish delight, which is... Um, which is temptation and yeah. leads to him trusting her because of, you know, he, she gave him all this candy, you know, um, <laughs> literally taking candy from a stranger. So it, it can be, it can be a symbol of like, a, 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 it can be alluring. Uh, it can be tempting. How, uh, but then you have this, this blood feast at the end. How do you see that particular scene? Which scene? The, the the feast at the end that you mentioned. Oh, I was talking about in the um, in the Odyssey. Oh, the yes. blood and gore scene because that's all um, compared to food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you see as as far as other than the temptation thing? What are you seeing? In the yeah, food? temptation that leads to gluttony. I, I, yeah. So she uses food to kind of draw you in and make sure that you 
never have enough. Yes. Um, and so if you get one Turkish delight, that is kind of like, I guess, Persephone in the underworld. She wasn't supposed to be eating those seeds. And then mm -hmm. also in Pan's Labyrinth, that little child was not supposed to eat at that table either. Then, yeah, you're kind of beholden to her, which it was almost like out of his control to, uh, which is like sin. Sometimes it's just yeah. like it, the temptation is just like it's there. It's hard. But other times I feel like with Tumness, though, that's a bit. That's a borderline. Definitely the beavers um, is this idea of hospitality where you're sharing and you have this relationship between the guests and the host. Tumness is playing the host, but he is not doing it for the right reasons, which is why I think like he is racked with guilt because it yeah. should be. Uh, you know, proffering this food, it should be creating this relationship, but he did it in order to trick. Um, but she receives it as a guest, and I think because of how open she is and trusting that that's why he might uh, break down. But yeah, so I think between, <laughs> yeah, between the, you can obviously see, see the stark contrast um, because the witch isn't even sharing a meal. She just gives this food mm -hmm. and he wants more and she can withhold it and say no. Whereas the other people, they're, they're sharing the meal with each other. Well, and you mentioned the Odyssey, and one of the big things about food in the Odyssey is the the theme of and the ancient Greek custom of hospitality, and the idea that you will let a guest into your house because um, that is their custom. Plus, you don't know if it's a god in disguise, so they let Nausicaa. Nausicaa, yeah. Nausicaa, yeah. She she takes him and her father. Um, sees Odysseus, doesn't even know who he is, and allows him to feast, and then eventually asks him who he is. And and the the suitors, and let's go back to the bloodbath. The suitors in book twenty one and twenty two are taking advantage of Penelope's hospitality, and that are inhospitable to uh, the disguised Odysseus and uh pay for it with their lives here there's like a layer of it's almost like i don't cynicism or skepticism that like is put upon them like you you see how like there's deception in in some of the ways that food is is offered and hospitality is offered um that it's almost going to cause you to to think twice about when somebody invites you in and I don't know if that's a lesson about the adult world he's trying to teach his audience or if he does have that sort of kind of cynical view mm. yeah so father Christmas arrives and I have a question about it but it's real I mean it's really supposed to be kind of the bounty of Christianity and the, and the blessings and gifts that can uh, that do come with it because uh, he does give gifts to, to the little kiddos. Um, now, Lucy gets this, I'm trying to think, I think she gets a small saber, a small knife, and she gets a dagger, and, of course, this liquid, this potion that can bring someone back from the edge of death. I don't know if she can resurrect, resurrect anyone. And Susan gets a bow and arrows and a horn, and then I think Peter gets a shield and a sword, and uh, Edmund gets something that's a saber-like. But the ladies are not allowed to fight. 
even though Susan is like, but I could do it, sir. Unless that's Lucy. But he says that, quote, battles are ugly when women fight. Because he tells them no a couple times that, no, you're not allowed to. Even though he's giving them these weapons that they could use. So my question is, uh, is it misogyny? Or do you feel like something is go- else is going on here with what he's saying? It's sexist. I don't know if it's misogynistic. Okay. Because he, although you know, like he doesn't seem to have a disdain for women. I mean, the the Susan and Lucy seem to have agency in a very good way. Lucy's they're both rewarded for their actions. Lucy Lucy's validated in her in the beginning of the novel by the adult, you know, you know, there is something sexist about going with that, going with the white, witch is the Satan, the temptress, right. As opposed to the snake in the garden or just a, a man. Um, so there's something a little bit sexist about that playing into those particular trips, but I don't think I'm not getting the feeling that CS Lewis hates women. Yeah. It does bug me. It is of its so of its time. Women couldn't fight in battles in in that army, and then and um, you know nowadays this would be a hard sell as far as a plot element. Uh, we've had a lot of strong female heroes. Uh, Katniss comes to mind, right, with the bow and arrow and the and such. Um, so I don't think any the time this I think this is where the I think this is where the cracks kind of show in in the the timelessness of of this work and that this uh, this doesn't really hold up among today's standards for what we view as far as uh, sex is concerned. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps I I misspoke or mistyped when I typed misogyny versus you know I just had misogyny on. There, but uh, but we're sexism. both we're both on social media all the time, and people jump to the more extreme examples of things all the time. So something could be flat out could just be sex, sexist on that scale, but people will just call it misogyny, you know. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not faulting you for it, but I was just saying it just it does seem sexist, but I don't think he hates women. I I guess I'm confused because I don't understand why he would give weapons. To I don't know either. And not Defense? allow them to fight. And the only thing because it does rub me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. But the only thing I can think is if I'm really reading closely at this, battles are ugly when women fight. To think about, like, pull back in World War II where primarily women were uh, nurses in that mm-hmm. capacity. Like, how awful would it be that, you know, we are also bringing women in into this war? So that's the only thing I can read is just, like, a commentary on, you know, wars are bad enough besides also bringing um, people in. And, of course, I say that and there are all those jokes about having women be a part of the draft uh, currently. Uh, but that's the mm. only thing I can say because, like I said, it just kind of confuses me because obviously they they are both willing to fight if if called upon. So I'm not sure. And I would hate for it to be like that's just a bummer to like, oh, there's sexism, even though you're saying it's like of the time. But I'm like, can't this man be above this sort of thing? So but I don't know. 
uh, is there <sighs> I'd have to talk to I should like email my pastor what do you think about this line right here well is there something in I'm not saying that Christianity is misogynistic or sexist but are there things that are preached within Christianity of a woman having a place of course and perhaps he's feeding into that too yeah that is true yeah yeah oh Neither of us have to agree with it, by the way. Oh, we no, obviously do not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it would have been interesting to see the two girls fight. Yeah. You know, I think that would have made for a... The battle is too sh- written too short. Yeah. Um, that's where I was saying the telling and not showing comes in. Like, it doesn't have to be 30 pages, like in, like, you know, The Return of the King or something, but... It seems to be there, and then Ashley shows up, and then they, they defeat the White Witch. It's almost like it's – it is. This happened, this happened, this happened, and we're just kind of getting a rundown of what happened. We're not really seeing it happen, and I don't know if he did that because uh, this is – because it would scare the kids or be too much for kids yeah. or or what. Could be. And I don't know how, like I said, I haven't read the others, so I do wonder. Because I think Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I think there might be some. I mean, I feel like there are more wars mm-hmm. in the in the next couple. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. See if they, because I think Susan is big in Prince Caspian. Mm-hmm. Um, like she takes a, a more lead role. So I do wonder if, if they get to fight. Who knows? It, it is interesting that a lot of this surrounds war. And I know, you know, a lot of it comes from, we talked about World War II, but yeah. and the Old Testament's full of wars. Not so much the new, but there is this sort of, is there like a God's army thing going on here? I mean, like, mm. what is the fixation, aside from the time in which he is writing and he's setting it in the Second World War, so you can kind of pull on that thread. Is he making some sort of statement about Christianity and and battle and war? I mean, where what do you think? It's all about it's a, it's a war, war against hostile forces, mm-hmm. um, and we're told to put on you know suits of armor and and things like that. Uh, so potentially, yeah. Or he wants to keep it steeped in that real, like we're talking about, if it is magical or fantastical realism, mm-hmm. um, have that. But it's, I mean, life is not easy. There's always a struggle. Yeah. Um, and yeah, against evil forces, I think we're always at battle. Uh, however you perceive that to be people, temptation, who knows? So mm-hmm. yes, I, th- I think you're on the right track there. Yeah. Well, I think my last question before the question is uh, about the balance between skepticism and faith and uh, how this is expressed in the story, especially the opposition between the two. This is a tough one. Certainly at the beginning, we're talking about when they go see the professor Mm -hmm. and she is talking to him and he is like... No, you know, this is because the, the boys are and, and and Susan are just like, you're you're full of it. And the world itself, especially when Lucy first encounters it and, and, and Mr. Tumnus is very childlike constructed. It's giving me a little bit of Hundred Acre Wood from from Winnie the Pooh and such, which would fit into the fantasy of a girl Lucy's age, because I think Lucy's supposed to be very, very young. Um, so, so they're like, their skepticism is, is 
valid because it kind of lines up with that. And then he's like, no, she's not lying. Why would she lie? And we get what we already discussed. I don't know beyond that. I know it's in there and it's like at the tip of my tongue, but I can't find the words to explain Edmund it. could be potentially the balance. I think so. Can you elaborate? <laughs> oh, just because he is certainly like, I don't believe in this. But uh, then once he experiences it, I think he's more open. Because obviously faith is believing in something that you can't see. But uh-huh. I think once he sees it, he is also more willing maybe to, to believe other things. Um, though he, I guess he's maybe the skeptic throughout. So we kind of see that because he believes the white witch is okay. And he's like scared of Aslan. He doesn't know Aslan. Um, but the kids like just believe that Aslan is this great creature without having seen him. Mm -hmm. But until... I guess Edmund's kind of like a Thomas person. Until yeah, until he sees it, then I think he has faith afterwards after he's kind of experienced it. But yeah, it's definitely um, with the initial wardrobe. Like Lucy is the one that kind of creates this opposition um, because the the kids are just not really. I think they're more skeptical. Um, the professor, I think, has the faith and is trying to lead them to maybe believing it a bit more. Mm. And then I think once the, all the kids are in Narnia, then they're, I think, more willing to believe things that they can't necess- necessarily see. Uh, but, yeah, I suppose that Edmund is the skeptic throughout, and then we start to see him change. It's one of his... Because he's not the most likable character, but it's one of his better qualities, actually, in a way. Being a skeptic? Yeah, because they are a little too, like, accepting of the idea of Aslan being inherently good without having even met him, just on, on word and reputation. And his skepticism is very realistic. You know, like, you there are a lot of people who cannot just simply believe you when you say, Oh, he is wonderful. And, and, and all those things, you know, um, he wants to make that judgment for himself. Yeah. I think this is one of, I think, like you said, he's the most dynamic character in the book because of the way his character changes. Then he becomes sort of the representative of justice in the world. But he, but this is part of his journey, and so having that skepticism, I think, helps eventually feed that insight that he has. So, because I think skepticism is healthy. Yes, yeah, a healthy <laughs> amount. Yeah, and yes. you know, I was told a lot at my previous job, my previous previous job, assume good intent with people. And I don't know that I necessarily do that with people. I don't know if I, like, assume bad intent, but I'm not trusting enough to be like, well, they probably meant well. They're only, like, certain people. Like, you would be someone that I would assume good intent. Like, Tom did this, but he probably didn't mean for that to come away, you know, across oh, the way that it you. came across, that sort of thing. But that that's a little, I think that's where maybe my skepticism comes in. Like, oh. I'll probably interrogate them to figure out why they did that before I assume. Yeah. 
I'm kind of the same way. Like, you know, with you, I always assume good intent because I'm not the one you scheme against. But, <laughs> um, but I've been burned too many times in my life yeah. with people who I thought had good intent and, and turned out to be uh, bullying or just not being very nice to me that I have, I tend to be more defensive. Yeah. That's just a personal thing though. So, so, but then again, that's 46 years of, of life. That's sure. many years of adulthood. I'm not a child anymore. Yeah. So I think children are more likely to believe Mm-hmm. to the point where that it becomes naivete, but I don't mm-hmm. think that he's, He's trying to show that Edmund doesn't is not as naive, but is also not trying to make it seem like the other kids are wrong because Aslan t- truly is. Um, well, he's the Christ figure, right? Yeah. So he's so he truly is good. Um, but you know, but even in like you said, even in the Bible, you have Thomas, right? So sometimes you just gotta check it out. Yeah. Just got to stick your finger in the wound. Yeah. I hope he washed his hands after that. I hope he washed it before. We don't need Jesus to get a disease. I think at that point in the story, he's self-healing. I don't think he's going to, I don't think he's, you're at risk for an infection after, after, uh, after Jesus come back and is resurrected. Yeah. I suppose. It's got like Wolverine's healing factor. He'll be fine. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to hell for that. Oi. Oi. Well, anyhow. Uh, any other questions or any topic you want to talk about? No, I think I think we've all covered it. Like I said, the the thing about the book is that like, you know, it once you adjust yourself for the audience in which it was att- intended, it works very well you're not going to get a lot of layering in the book and there's a little bit, um, but it, it really does appeal to the fantasies of, of children. You know, they're, they're playing with animals and they're in the woods and they're exploring a new world, curiosity. And, you know, (laughs) that time the boys fight in battle games, you know, and those sorts of things. So it takes that and, and puts it into a reality and then sends a message that, as somebody who's not really religious, even I saw the the positive aspects of the moral lessons that are being taught. Mm-hmm. And I think that works as opposed to something that is so, I don't know if it was something um, like an American evangelical, very, very much right right-wing religious you know would have published like a kirk cameron or somebody would have written where it is like it's going to be heavy-handed it's going to smack you upside the face with it in a way that is showing you less about like giving the morals of christianity but condemning everything else and i don't feel that that's happening here i feel that he is just he is zeroing in on the morals that are at the heart of those teachings in a way that is healthy. Yeah, and and I spoke about, I think it was the previous episode, 
that Christians, I'm going to generalize here, but, you know, Christians on the street, it's more like deficit language, which mm. is what makes Christianity unattractive when you're, like, telling people they're going to go to hell and that yeah. they're sinners. Like, that, I mean, that's whatever. It's true that we're all sinners, but you don't need to be presenting it that way. Like, the positive aspect of it is like, well, yeah, I, I mean, you're a sinner, but, hey, guess what? You know, someone someone died for you, and, and you're you're forgiven for these, and there's a great place, um, and that you're loved. Like, there are all these positive aspects that people avoid, and I think that this certainly does not delve into the deficit language. Mm -hmm. uh, very much is, yeah, the positive aspects and the hope. Um, yeah. and the blessings and, and the love that's within this religion. Yeah. Well, isn't that deficit language when the people who are using it are looking for control as in many cases, as opposed to actually helping you? Yeah, but I, I suppose so, but I don't really understand what they're getting out of it. I mean, control over what? It's oh, not like I... they're at the top of the religion. They're not God. So I just don't understand why people do it. If you can explain it to me, by um, all means. Ego. I, I, a oh, sense okay. of uh, ego, a sense of wanting to feel superior, um, bias confirmation. Interesting. That I'm uh, saved and you're not. Yeah, of, I'm okay, saved and you're not. You are, you are condemned and I am not because I'm on the right path. I can hold this over your head because I'm better than you. And honestly... A lot of that's not coming a, – a number of those people, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're they're spouting those things and on some level they believe them. But they're also being told that by the people who are actually in power in those institutions. So they're being manipulated as well by people yeah. who are just warping Christianity to their own political or whatever gains. So Lewis is not taking that path. Yeah. No, it is not. And I think that's one of the things I can appreciate about the allegorical aspects of this and the lessons of this book. Absolutely. Yep. You know, I was worried with my questions, like, well, I haven't asked one Christian question in there, but I figured it would come out somehow. So it all worked. <laughs> well, I think that's, we, we seem yeah. to have a healthy relationship with one another to that's have awesome. these conversations. Oh, yes, of course. That I feel that they're, uh, I feel that they're worthwhile. I think, yeah, I would agree. I, I feel like we have them every other episode by now, yeah. but with the books that we've chosen, I this mean, you true. chose Blankets, didn't you, or that was me? That was you. Okay. It's also good, I think, audience-wise, like uh, anyone mm -hmm. listening can, I mean, you might fall either, obviously we're different ends of the spectrum, yeah. but not, not really. I would say maybe we're closer, because like opposite I would be like, you're an atheist. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think anyone can like, find anything to like either one of us they can kind of fall yeah. they have a representation that's what i'm trying to say they have yeah, a yeah, representative yeah. maybe of their belief systems mm -hmm. so unless we have muslim listeners or hindu um which but I even then all, all religions i don't even that i feel that we if we're, we're to pull on characters of, of those religions would be welcoming you know <laughs> so to speak. 
So, Did you repeat what you said? I think if we were to pull like from if we were to have characters who were Muslim or Hindu or whatever. Oh yeah. We would be very welcoming. I don't think Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, I was having that discussion with my mother recently of just like even though I may not subscribe to your religion, I am not in any way going to again that's deficit language, just be like going after you because yeah i'm very welcoming of of others as well so yeah i don't know that's the difference between me again and other christians well and, it, and people of the people of the cloth so to speak have relationships with other priests and yeah, rabbis absolutely and, and imams imams and and all those in in other religions all the time and they have healthy friendly relationships too um, it's again, it's, it's a, it's more of a political power thing to keep these, these ideas separate and, um, like stratify in the way that, that you see that it's, it's a lot of political rhetoric as opposed to actual religious rhetoric. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, Tom, would you, oh, is this required reading as an adult? Uh, you know, if, if you're interested in going back and looking at it, I would recommend it. For children, I'm kind of on the fence. It's not something I would never recommend. You know, like, I'd be like, you know, if you sat down and said, I'd like to read this, I'd be like, oh, go ahead. Um, you know, because it is it is a fascinating book. You, you do get quite a bit out of it. It's a story that is told so simply. Um, is it up there in, like, the absolutely canonical required text for children to read before they get too old gold for it i'm not sure although i probably would read this before i read harry potter i'll be honest with you so there's that so it's it's a recommended reading type of of situation and i keep mentioning redwall um because i do love it i've had I just have not had a time, but that's one thing that I would love to like read through all of them. Cause I mean, there are like dozens of books, mm. um, but talk about the uh, battles, wars and that they it gets brutal in Redwall. Um, but I kind of think, I, I think about our friend Margaret from, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. Ah, yes. And I just wonder, you know, is this the thing where do you just re- read this to your child or have your child read it no matter what? Mm-hmm. Or do you allow them the freedom to decide kind of where they're going to fall um, on religion and beliefs and then maybe give it to them like, hey, here's something in the start of their like religious journey? I, I'm I'm not sure. That's a good question. I'm not sure. Because again, anyone could. Because there's some religious uh, symbolism in the Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I mean, if you're, I guess if you just treat it like a text, a story, then mm-hmm. I think any any kid, I mean, I, I think it'd be delightful to read this to a child. And then maybe if they do decide to start on something, you can have more in-depth conversations with them. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I think, like, as a good starter, it's a good, nice little early, early reader, maybe. Mm-hmm. I wonder what the Lex, uh, what's it called? Lexile level? Yeah, the Lexile level is of this. Would you you say this is an early or middle grades? Maybe early middle grades. Okay. That's the thing, though. Lexile level is a weird thing because there are things that are written on certain Lexile levels that I would not give to a student who's reading on that Lexile level. Because they went by – when they compiled the – 
approved book list for for our particular counties, uh, you know, reading. There are books that are on the ninth grade list that I wouldn't assign to ninth graders. And we're not just talking like content wise, but like Jane Eyre in my mind is not a ninth grade text, (laughs) but it's, but it's on that list because it hits the Lexile level. So there's that, or there's things that hit a middle grade Lexile level, but have way too much racy content because they're written on that. They're written on that particular reading level, but they're there's sex and violence that, 12 year olds probably that might probably more meant for like the high school kids um than say uh say like a fifth grader or something so i think the the lexile levels is increasingly becoming not a good metric Mm. for uh for determining what literature to read and such but yeah this is probably yeah your upper elementary low middle grade I could I could have seen I could see myself reading this when I was like in the th- the fourth or fifth grade. Yeah, I can second that. Yeah. Maybe even a little bit younger, maybe third. But I was an accelerated reader, so <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. Okay, well, I think we have some viewer questions. Yes, and I will go ahead. We have uh, two comments from Robert Ward, our book buddy. Well, the first comment is about Carrie. He says. This Halloween season has not been off to a great start for me. I had hoped to have watched more horror films by now, but something always seems to come up. I also had hoped to include some horror novels, but that too seems distracted. With that, I'm glad I was finally able to read Carrie. I didn't enjoy it as much as YouTube, but I... It did make me want to rewatch the film. I've seen it a few times, but with the recent passing of Piper Laurie, who played Carrie's mother, by the way, uh, it seems fitting to revisit. I think I'll always enjoy King films over King novels. Sometime soon, I hope I can add more horror novels to my queue. I need to read more. Now that I've finished A Modern Gothic Horror by Anna Biller, director of The Love Witch, which takes... Rebecca slash Jane Eyre, but puts it through a spousal abuse Whoa. lens. Oy. I'm eager to read Isabel Canyas. Canyas. Um, so that was his first comment. And then he talked about Narnia being the choice for this particular episode. He thinks, says, I think Narnia is going to be a fun choice. I only read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, so it might be fun to use this as a push off a cliff to read the entire series. Oh. I'm going to have the look to look at my audiobook queue to see what various adaptations sound the most interesting and can be thrown in. Yeah, this is, I, you see, I don't read a lot of, listen to a lot of audiobooks, but this would be kind of curious as to like, what makes a good audio production book production for a book like this? Right. Yeah. Like um, what would make this, this could be a very interesting audiobook, but like, what do you have to put into the audiobook to make it like really come alive in a way that like somebody simply reading it might not. Sir Ian McKellen. <laughs> that would be interesting. Patrick Either Stewart. as Aslan or as the professor. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think maybe some uh, sound effects, which they sometimes do for Star Wars audiobooks, but not okay. all of them, which I don't know what the difference is, like when they decide to do that and when not. The producers, maybe? Maybe, yeah. Uh, but that, that's been interesting sometimes. Or an I, audio play. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Like, um, 
I go back to I always go back to World War Z oh. and and the full cast audio drama that is the audiobook of the novel. It's phenomenal. So and I've listened to um, graphic audio, which is a comp, which is a company that does audio dramas of various and assorted uh, like comic book stories like Crisis on Infinite Earths and Kingdom Come and the Marvel stuff, uh, the Infinity Gauntlet. I, 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 off the top of my head, I can't remember what what else they've done, but like they they are full audio dramas of like adaptations of these particular. Uh, comic book stories and stuff so that might work for something like this too yeah and i will say it's not a brag at all but this halloween season i watched all of the jason films <laughs> even parts like seven and eight which are probably the all lowest point of that entire I have to say that that one where he goes to hell is so gross with those little worm things and like all that stuff it was so gross i have and not like... seen jason goes to hell since like it came out oh, <laughs> on video yeah, back the in remake. the 90s oh man all of them it happened because i was like oh i've not seen the first one since junior year of high school I was like let mm. me watch this and i thought well i should watch the second one because jason's not really the you know the villain in the yeah. first and then he doesn't have his mask so then i was like well i really should watch <laughs> the third one because he doesn't have his mask and then it got to the fourth because i'm like well the fourth says it's the end so i should just watch and then it just got out of control yeah. so i watched them watch... all. now the good news is they're like an hour and a half so you know and i like barely i it was like on but i was doing other stuff Mm-hmm. So I wasn't like really, really invested, but um, I think I'm one and done. Like I don't need to do that again. <laughs> did you watch Jason X as well? Oh, sure did, <laughs> sure did. There are some interesting, interesting things in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I haven't ventured beyond. Um, I remember watching part nine because a friend of mine was like really into these movies. I've seen bits and pieces of part five and I've seen all of one and most of four. Uh, but you know, and then I've seen like here and there scenes from various, uh, various sequels and stuff like that. Uh, I guess the other path to go down for you would be probably the nightmare on Elm street movies. Yeah. Although, so. although I was considering Hellraiser. I've never watched any of those. So I can't, I cannot offer an opinion on Hellraiser, yeah. so maybe somebody who's listening can tell well, you whether or not. Yeah, well, Harry said one and two, and all the other ones are duds. But I was thinking about reading the novella first to get mm. a better idea. Of, like, what point. is the philosophy yeah. behind the Cenobites yeah. and which, and then going in? But I don't know. Because it was free. All those Jasons were for free. Oh, yeah. But it's like, oh, man, if I got to pay two ninety nine for a movie, that's not going to be good. It's not worth it. Well, and and horror series, when they start to get beyond, like, the third or fourth movie, it becomes redonkulous yeah. how bad they get. So, you know, um, buyer beware. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> know what you're getting into. Yeah. Yeah. So. Right. Uh, I would like to just put a quick plug out. So last year for our Christmas episode, we interviewed Helena Greer and um, her novel uh, Season of Love. I was squinting across the room because it's literally staring at me from the, uh, the spine of it is literally staring at me from bookshelf. Um, her second book for Never and Always uh, came out on November oh. 28th. So I'd just like to give her a plug there. And, and it's the guy, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's the guy who oh, comes okay. in at the end with with the other with the other person. So um, I have not. Um, as of this recording, I have not read it yet because I pre-ordered it and it hasn't come in. But okay. um, but but she she did publish it. It is available in bookstores all over the place. And yeah, and I also like to plug my friend, uh, a friend of a friend of mine and a friend of of, of Helena's as well. Uh, the poet VC McCabe has a poetry collection out called Ophelia that. Um, is takes off uh, uses the Hamlet character Shakespeare character of Ophelia as a starting point and is a really really good collection of poetry that I recommend. I also recommend her first collection, Give the Bard a Tetanus Shot. So wow. those are available as well. If I can plug a couple of friends' books, so gosh, I mean, so. why else have a podcast if you can't promote your friends? <laughs> Which I did on the most recent pop episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. So there you go, because <laughs> I interviewed go. my friend Mike about his new book. So. So, yeah. There you go. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. I just thought I just thought I'd offer that up. Well, Tom, is it that time? I believe so. Tom, what on earth or in Narnia are we reading for next episode? <laughs> so our next episode comes out in the dead of winter in January. So I thought I'd pick something that usually take that takes place in a very very cold environment, probably in the dead of January. Um, and we're going to stay in England. We're going to stay with the concept of heroes, but we're going back. We're going way, way back. We are going back to the origin point for English literature. And we are going to be reading Beowulf. <gasps> and specifically, and I want to make sure that I, uh, that I, that I say this because I've, I've insisted on this, specifically the translation by Seamus Haney. Uh, which is uh, because there's several translations out there and um, that's the one that has grabbed me the most. So um, I wanted to specifically read the Seamus Haney translation. So Beowulf as translated by Seamus Haney, that'll be our next episode. Yeah. Tom was like being very dominant in a top <laughs> by like constant, like multiple times. Jeez. He's like, that has to be yeah. the translation style. And I'm like, okay, well, well, it's interesting because, like, we talk about translations, and like, I'm I'm also looking at my my copy of Beowulf is in my classroom because I was reading it during lunch day. But um, I'm looking across the other bookshelf, and there's Emily Wilson's Iliad and Odyssey. And I think if we were to do the Odyssey, I don't think I'd insist on a particular translation, but I would probably read the Wilson translation because I enjoyed it so much. I also have the Robert Fagel's one. Um, and I can get a hold of Fitzgerald, but that's that's way down the line. I'm not really ready to cover the Odyssey on this podcast yet. Um, wow. I've got a I've got to cover it in class anyway. So, yeah. yeah, but yeah, but Beowulf. So Beowulf would be uh, be that uh, be our next thing. Um, if you have an opinion on that, if you're running scared, if you're just like, oh my god, the trauma that was high school English and Beowulf saved me now, uh, let us know. <laughs> and such let us know what you thought about art narnia and everything and uh, as always thank you very much for listening and take care and if any stranger off the street rides up to you and offers you some turkish delight i suggest say no thank you yeah don't get in that van <laughs> Good night. Uh, goodbye thanks for listening to required reading with tom and stella which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks.
If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. Wake up in the late afternoon Call Parnell just to see how he's doing Hello, what up, pawns? Yo, Sandberg, what's crackin'? You thinkin' what I'm thinkin'? Money up, man, it's happening. But first, my hunger pains are stickin' like duct tape Just hit up MacDoga and back on some cupcakes No doubt that bakery's got all about Bob Foster. I love those cupcakes like McAdams loves Gosling Gosling, Gosling Yeah.